Luke chapter 14, and this morning we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. On Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, you may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, by your word and spirit, continue, we pray, to strike a chord in our hearts and conform us more, we pray, in the image and likeness of the humble King himself. Work that grace in us that the gospel might shine forth and that Christ might be more fully honored in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Yogi Berra was a professional baseball player and a coach and a manager of the New York Yankees for years, and he was famous for his unintentional yogiisms, uh, colloquial sayings that really lacked logic, things like, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, when you, you can observe a lot by just watching, it ain't over till it's over. No one goes there nowadays, it's just too crowded. Baseball is 90% mental and the other half physical. And then one he often said, it's deja vu all over again. Well, in a sense, that's what our passage is this morning. It's deja vu all over again. Again, yet again, we find Jesus in combating the Pharisees on the Sabbath. He, three times now, this is the third time in Luke's gospel, he's actually healed on the Sabbath. He healed a, a man with a withered hand. He healed a woman who had had difficulties for 18 years and now our account here in this passage. Well, the setting is in the home of a prominent religious leader and Jesus had been invited with several others for lunch after the Sabbath worship. It was typically the biggest and best meal of the week. It had been prepared the day before and after worship in the synagogue, people would invite others over to their home for a grand Sabbath day feast and Jesus was invited. It was very much like some of us growing up with Sunday dinners after church where family and friends would gather for a leisurely afternoon enjoying food together. But there's something that smelled suspicious about this dinner. We're told that there were those there, presumably the Pharisees and 
teachers of the law who are watching Jesus carefully. He had been invited so that he could be under their watchful, self-righteous, critical eye. It was probably a setup because there was a man here with dropsy, more commonly known as edema, a condition in which the small blood vessels would excrete uh, fluid into other parts of the body and it would cause swelling. And it's very unlikely that anyone with that condition would be invited to the home of a Pharisee for fear of ceremonial uncleanliness and contamination. So more than likely, the whole scene is a setup. You invite Jesus so that he can be under the critical eye of the self-righteous, and this man at best was a prop used to trap Jesus. But once again, Jesus challenges them on their cold-hearted, self-righteous view of the Sabbath. He demonstrates God's grace and mercy in healing this man, reminding them this is a day of joy and gladness. It's a day of rest and refreshment, a day of worship and ministry. And again, for the third time now, in Luke's gospel, the self-righteous religious leaders have been silenced with regard to their cold-hearted view of the Lord's day. Well, it's interesting in this setting that the scene takes an ironic twist. They had invited Jesus so that he could be carefully watched, but in reality, Jesus was carefully watching them. Verse 7 tells us that he was observing where they chose to sit. In that day, in that culture, there would be a U-shaped table setting and the host would be in the middle and the most important people would be centered towards the middle and the less important towards the outside in that U-shaped setting. And Jesus watched as people came in assuming that they were the most important, assuming that they were the most valued guests and he watched them jockeying for positions and working their way, scrambling towards those seats of honor, assuming that they were the most important guests. And Jesus wanting to rescue them and rescue us from our self-righteous assumptions tells a parable about a wedding banquet, about a wedding feast. And in this parable, we see that the kingdom of God is opposed to self-righteous pride, which causes us to think and assume more highly of ourselves than we ought. Jesus observed the people entering the Sabbath dinner, and he, he told this parable of what not to do. When you enter into a social setting, Jesus says, do not simply sit down in the place of honor. When you are invited, don't choose that as a seat. In other words, don't assume you're the most important guest at the festivities. Why not? Well, social protocol, cultural protocol, in that day would have caused it to be humiliating if later you chose that seat and somebody more important came in. And then you're asked to move. Can you imagine being at a a wedding reception where hundreds of people have been invited and it's a sit-down meal and you come in thinking that you're the most important person in there and you sit down at the head table only to find out you've sat at the table of the father of the bride and in front of hundreds you're asked to move and sit in the back. That's the setting, that's the scene Jesus gives in this parable. Jesus is rather 
assume, assuming a place at the head table, choose the less sought-after seat and wait for the host to promote you. Now, why is Jesus telling this parable? What is Jesus doing? Far more than giving a lesson in social etiquette, far more than trying to spare us of embarrassment of a major faux pas, Jesus is dealing with the heart of the issue, namely our hearts, hearts that assume our self-importance, hearts that are highly critical of others and prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, hearts that are prone to self-promotion and self-exaltation. You know, when it comes to our social status, sometimes because of our incomes or our education, because of what we drive or where we live, because of what we do or what we have, we just sort of assume we must be in a higher bracket than those around us. We assume because of our accomplishments that we are somebody even more important than the people around us. And these settings have a way of playing with our heart and exposing that self-righteous pride and self-exaltation. I shared with you before last year I was given two tickets by our new wide receiver coach to sit on the field during the national championship celebration. And so I invited Bob Bowen to come be with me. And so as we walked into, onto the field of Death Valley and looked up, and there are thousands of people already gathered there, and we walked in with the elite of Clemson, the 1981 national championship players, the 2016 national championship players. Some of the coaches and their families came in onto the field. And the big-name Ipte donors, by the way, none of which Bob and I are, We walked onto that field, and I just sort of tongue-in-cheek as we looked up at the thousands. I looked at Bob and said, I pity all those commoners up there. (laughs) You know, sometimes where we sit causes us to feel more important about ourselves. Or could it be the feeling of self-importance causes us to think we deserve those seats? Jesus is challenging our notion of self-promotion. And, you know, we promote ourselves and demote others a thousand ways in our hearts all the time. I deserved that promotion at work. I deserve that recognition in the community. I, I deserve to have been treated with greater honor by my children or coworkers or friends or whoever it may be. We promote ourselves and demote others a thousand ways every day in our own hearts. And Jesus wants to rescue us from the self-deceived self-righteousness and self-exaltation. He challenges our hearts. The Apostle Paul in Romans penned these words, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than it he ought. And it takes grace to do that. Paul went on and write the, the Philippians and how that humility will have effect on our relationships with others. He said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
You see, the gospel calls us to not, not to self-promotion, but to the promotion of others, of their encouragement and their benefit. That's what life in the kingdom is like because it's governed by a radically different heart than the hearts of those in this world who are hungry for self-promotion and hungry for self-exaltation. You see, the the kingdom of God promotes not a false self-righteousness. It promotes genuine righteousness in Christ, which seeks to cultivate a heart of humility. The self-righteousness of the dinner guests and the self-exalting motives of their hearts cause them to pursue the seat of honor. And Jesus says to those of us who are members of the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Christ, he says, don't sit up front. Now, I'm not talking about church. I tease some of my friends who sit in the back. They will argue, by the way, that's the front because what door did you come in? Jesus is not talking about where you sit but where your heart is. Don't come in and assuming that you are entitled to the seat of honor. Don't sit up in the front. Don't assume the place of honor. Rather, sit in the back. Not simply to save face. Not simply to avoid social shame. But because you truly believe in your heart of hearts, that's where you belong. That's where I belong. I don't belong in the seat of honor. Rather, if I'm honest with myself and honest before God and honest with you, what I deserve is a seat of shame because of my sin. Jesus says, I I want you to sit there not so that you'll uh, save face or avoid social embarrassment. I want you to sit there because you believe that is your place where you truly belong. You see When the Holy Spirit begins to put his finger on my sin, I realize I deserve a seat of shame. When I consider my failure before God in thought and word and deed, I realize I do not deserve a place of honor or a seat of honor. In fact, I begin to ask not where's my rightful recognition, but what right do I have even to be in the banquet hall itself? That's what true humility is before God and before others. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, John Newton said he would be absolutely stunned when he went into heaven for three reasons. He said this, If I ever reach heaven, expect to find uh, myself there. Three wonders. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. No wonder John Newton, the former godless slave trader, when he penned the words to amazing grace, the first word was amazing. To those of us who recognize our sin, our by nature utter unworthiness, even to be in the banquet hall at all, grace is amazing. To the self-righteous, to the self-righteous, it's just simply a song. But to the believer in Christ, it is truly amazing. Tim Keller said, humility is the byproduct of believing the gospel. So how does this belief in the gospel and true humility affect my relationships with others? Well, it's going to go a long way in my marriage, in your marriage. 
It will go a long way in seeking authentic community among brothers and sisters in Christ because rather than living life as if you're the center of attention, all of a sudden there's a Copernicum revolution in which you see others as the center. And you begin to treat them in that way and you begin to die to yourself more and more. How does this work in the body of Christ and in marriage and in relationships? Well, humility is going to be reflected in how we respond when we are wronged and when we are criticized constructively or otherwise. The the humble heart does not feel this need to immediately defend themselves. It doesn't feel this angst that I've got to retaliate in some way and and get them back with a zinger. But rather, in, in the words of a Greek philosopher, Epictetus, he once wisely said this, if anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, whether it's at work or at home or play, wherever you might be, if anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but answer, he was ignorant of my other faults, else he would have not mentioned these alone. In other words, your most horrific critic still doesn't know the half of the unworthiness of our hearts and thoughts and intents. And even if those accusations prove false, listen to the humble response of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so in our relationships, if we truly understand our identity in Christ, if we truly understand who we are in terms of our sin and debtors to mercy alone, then there's no need to promote ourselves or defend ourselves or exalt ourselves before others. Rather, in humility, we simply entrust ourselves to God. Now, what I've just said, the world would say you're an idiot. You're a fool to believe that. Because if you don't promote yourself, if you don't defend yourself, if you don't look out for number one, then who will, says the world. And Jesus' very brief and short answer is this. God. God will. It may not come to the end of his return, but God will exalt you as you're looking and trusting in him. It may not be until the day of judgment, but he will do that. And for this reason, the kingdom of God is characterized by a great reversal, a reversal that the world cannot understand, the, the places in which we work cannot understand, the people among who we live often cannot understand, and it is this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those are the words of Jesus in verse 11. That's the great reversal that we see in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' teaching is actually rooted in the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 25, for example, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, Come up here 
than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Not only did Jesus pick up on that wisdom of the Proverbs, but so did James and Peter. They both highlight this principle of Proverbs 25, and they quote Proverbs 3.34 as well, which gives the reason for this great and unexpected reversal. Here's why. God opposes. That is, He stands against, He is an enemy towards, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, the workings of the world are diametrically opposed to that. If you don't defend yourself, if you don't promote yourself, if you don't look out for number one, then who will? And even Christians are prone to operate that way because we've forgotten the reality of the kingdom and the great reversal. The reality is this, those who exalt themselves in this life will be greatly demoted and humiliated in the life to come. But those who humble themselves before the mighty God will be exalted. We, we see this great reversal in the life of Mary and her great Magnificat of which we sing and have heard sung during this time of the year. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those in humble estate. Far from thinking that somehow she deserved the honor of bearing the Christ child, Mary actually thought, I'm the last person on the planet who deserves this. Who is God to think so highly of the humble? And thus we see the great reversal in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus in, in this parable is telling us to seek to be free from the self-righteous tendency of self-exaltation. In the words of James Edwards, Christian discipleship is not self-promotion, but freedom from it. It is freedom from self-obsession itself. If you stop there for a moment, that is so countercultural. Everything you're hearing, everything we hear in the media and in articles, in the magazines, in the newspapers, across the airwaves, it's all about me, self-obsession. But when we come to Christ, there's this Copernicum revolution in which no longer am I in the center of everything, but Christ is, and it moves out from there. Then it's others and myself Well, I'm sitting in the back. Because I recognize I don't even deserve to be in the banquet hall of God's grace and mercy. This is the great reversal. John Stott, I've quoted him many times, said this for this reason. At every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And so what is Jesus doing in this parable? He's calling upon you. He's calling upon me through the power of the Holy Spirit and the hope of the gospel to cultivate genuine hearts of genuine humility. This cultivation of hearts is going to require faith. It's going to require me believing the gospel is better news than I've ever heard because I believe what the Bible says about me and my unworthiness, my utter unworthiness to even be in the hall. And so I must believe the gospel that Jesus is enough. 
that Jesus' blood and righteousness is all I need to be an invited guest into the banquet hall of His grace. It's going to require me to believe the gospel that I can actually entrust myself to Him who judges justly because, to be honest, in this life, you may be maligned and you may be slandered and it will never come to light in this life. But one day in glory it will. I must believe this great reversal is true. That when I humble myself before the cross, before mighty God, before a watching world, that one day that great reversal will take place and the humble will be exalted. The world, the flesh, and the devil will constantly tell you it is not so. If you do not promote yourself in this life, you lose. But Jesus says otherwise. Do you believe it? Those who exalt themselves will be humble, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So how do we begin to cultivate, through the power of the Spirit and the hope of the gospel, genuine hearts of humility? In short, we begin by gazing upon the King of the kingdom, by focusing our attention upon Christ. This time of the year, we focus upon His incarnation. We, we focus upon this mighty God who humbled Himself and became an impoverished child born in a borrowed feeding trough. We look at the cradle and then we move forward to the cross. And in the cradle and the cross, as we focus upon Christ, we begin to see our hope of genuine humility in our own lives. Paul did this in Philippians 2. Earlier, as we looked at verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves or more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. When the very next breath, Paul probably even took a breath, did not even take a breath. He said, consider Christ. Where will your motive and means to pursue this kind of humility come from? Where will the, the, the pattern and the power come from? Rivet your hearts and your, uh, and your affections upon Christ. That's the very next words in Philippians. Listen to these words. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Focus on Him, cradle to the cross who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And here's the great reversal. Here's the principle of the kingdom of God. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him as the name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Several years ago, Ligon Duncan had the privilege of studying under a professor, a Scottish professor named Donald McLeod. And I was having lunch one day with Ligon, and he, he handed me this piece of paper and said, this is what McLeod said in class. I've read it before, and I'm going to probably read it again. But listen, as Donald McLeod begins to unpack 
some of the application of Jesus' cradle and Jesus' cross from Philippians chapter 2, the verses we just read. McLeod writes, the final outworking of Christ's attitude appears in verse 7. The clause translated, he made himself of no reputation, literally means he emptied himself. Here in Philippians 2, 7, the best translation is, he made himself nothing. The self-emptying of Christ did not consist in his laying aside something. It did not consist in his laying aside his deity. He's still fully God, fully man. Instead, the truth is expressed in the starting paradox. He emptied himself taking. Did you notice that? He emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. It was a subtraction by addition. And what he did take is defined as the form of a servant. The likeness of men and the cursed death of the cross. He accepted a dramatic reduction in status. Undergoing a demotion and degradation so complete that at last his identity was totally obscured and all that could be seen was a man disgraced, disfigured, and damned. His death rose intensified by the terrible sense of alienation from God and this willingness on our Lord's part to be nothing is decisive for our own theology of guidance. As Christians, we never have the right to put our own interests first. I don't care what the world says. Christ reminds us as Christians, we never have the right to put our own interests first. We have to view our options from the standpoint of others, even though this may lead to a serious loss for ourselves. God's will for us, as for Christ, may involve a downward rather than upward movement. Demotion rather than promotion. We have no choice. Entrance into the Christian life is through the straight gate, always too narrow to allow us to bring the baggage of our own egoisms through. To be converted is to have accepted in principle the role of a servant so that our own personal wants and desires can never again be paramount. We live to do God's will, and that often meets us as something we shrink from, as the Lord shrank from his cup, as Moses, Jeremiah, and Paul shrank from preaching. We may go further. Not only will service come between us and our desires, it may come between us and our needs, and, our, and simply because our concern to meet the needs of others makes it impossible at times to tend to our own. God's will may, for example, cut right across the temperaments. The gregarious person called to intense loneliness. The shy to intense publicity. The physically weak to great tests of endurance. The inescapable fact is that God's guidance always leads to kenosis, to this self-emptying. So that this self-emptying only asks what will best meet the needs of others. Do you realize how counterintuitive and countercultural all this is? 
but it is so intuitive. It is so in sync with the kingdom of God. Because the reality of this great reversal will come to fruition one day when the proud will be humbled and the humble will be exalted in the presence of the King of glory himself. Jesus is the one who said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, my friends, during this Christmas season, focus on the cradle. Look at the cross and behold the king of humility, the humble king who has come to this earth on our behalf. And may Christ himself be the motive and the means in seeking to pursue genuine righteousness reflected in humility of heart when one only asks, what will best meet the needs of others? Let's pray together. Jesus, so often people want to keep Christ in Christmas, and yet there is probably no better way to do that, not with manger scenes plastered in New York Square, but with this world plastered with, be- with, with believers who believe the great reversal is true. And so, oh God, I pray that you would cultivate in us the humble heart of the King of glory and the King of grace, that you would grant us fresh repentance to turn from our pride-filled self-exaltation, that you would forgive us for in a thousand ways every day of considering ourselves more highly than we ought and belittling others, and grant us the grace to consider others more significant than even ourselves. Enable us by your word and spirit to consider him who was rich beyond all splendor, yet all for love's sake became poor. And thank you, O Father, that you've indeed exalted him to the highest place and seated him at your right hand and crowned him with glory and honor. And we praise you, O God, from the depths of our heart that one day we will find ourselves seated around the table of the king the King of glory and the King of grace because such is the kingdom, the gospel for those who humble themselves before the cross. And so, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you this day as our great and glorious King and our humble King of glory. We pray in your matchless name. Amen.